This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to the Cosmic Shed. I'm Andrew and this is Steve. So we are out of the shed at Bookhouse, which is a wonderful new independent bookshop in central Bristol. I'm Steve and I'm joined by Hannah and Robin. This is the marvellous Robin Ince. Thanks so much for letting us come to your book tour talk Q&A. Uh, we're going to be broadcasting it largely unedited, which is going to make for a, uh, an easy job for Andrew, who couldn't make it tonight. The Cosmic Shed is all about science fact, science fiction, and everything in between. So I've got some very straightforward questions for you, hopefully. What's your favourite science fact? At the moment, it's very, it's very much a changeable feast, but at the moment, it is the change of the experience of time when you go over the event horizon and you look back out of the universe and you see it moving at an incredible speed of formation of galaxies, destruction of galaxies, and you get a huge walloping amount of the history of the universe before you're spaghettified. Pretty straightforward. Horribly, though. horribly killed. We're going to hear a bit um, about science fiction in your... Uh, interview with Hannah Um, but what's your favourite science fiction? I think my favourite novel probably is Roadside Picnic which I mentioned in in the talk I I do enjoy a lot of uh, Philip K. Dick Uh, also uh, Octavia Butler as well I would put in in that list who I've only recently started reading and then you do get people like Margaret Atwood as well who almost isn't called science fiction because she's won enough prizes that they go no I think she's literature (laughs) now but I don't think she would have such a snotty problem with that one thing that Andrew did want to know is, what's your worst science fiction? Oh, that's really hard, isn't it? Because it is... I'm, do you know what? I'm not... It, it's when it is just a cowboy movie, which is dressed up with occasionally people with kind of eyes on stalks or whatever, or, or, or dressed as frogs. My, I mean, my favourite, not bad... I'm a huge fan of Hell Comes to Frogtown, starring Rowdy Roddy Piper, the fam- famous uh, bagpiping wrestler which a lot of other people look down their noses at, but it is great. He plays a character called Hell, and he goes to a place called Frogtown. It's a good film. I'll check that one out. So we'll dive straight into your uh, interview with Hannah Little uh, about your new book, The Importance of Being Interested. Um, so hello, everybody, and welcome to Bookhouse. Um, who We've been open, what? Oh, Bookhouse have been open. I don't work here. Two months. Two months. Um, but it's, it's a lovely little bookshop. And welcome to Robin Ince. Hello. So I first saw Robin um, do stand-up comedy back in probably 2007. um, Oh, my heyday. Yes. (laughs) I don't think you've peaked yet. Um, uh, Back when I was doing my undergraduate degree in linguistics. And I remember that because um, I remember going to see... Uh, Robin Shaw and there was little bits of kind of evolutionary biology peppered about his set and that kind of increased year on year as I came to see you and I myself got really interested in it it, to the point where in in 2009 and it was the um, 200 years since Darwin's birth and also 150 years since the uh, publication of The Origin of Species and you were doing all sorts of shows about evolution and the people uh, around you were doing that and I got really into it. Like, to the point where I remember going to see my tutor at university and going, I think I've made a mistake. <laughs> I shouldn't be doing linguistics. I really want to do evolutionary biology. And my, ling- uh, and my tutor said to me, um, oh, do you know that there's such a thing as evolutionary linguistics? And I was like, no. 
Uh, and then I went and did a master's degree in that and then a PhD in that. Um, and now I'm a senior lecturer in science communication at UE Bristol. And in many ways, I think that's due to you. And, uh, are, you are you enjoying your career? Is it going on? I love it. I love it. Well done, me then. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I'm absolutely love... stoked to be uh, hosting you this evening. It's really terrifying now that I had, like, uh, sometimes get people who are 19 who've gone to study physics and they go, because when I started listening to Monkeyhead, you go, oh my God, they were children. And now they, and it is really exciting. And I, I, I'm really, I'm glad if it did have any influence, I'm glad that it, it was uh, yeah. useful. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that journey is reflected a bit in the book, which I finished it on the bus on the way here, because um, I like being last minute. Um, uh, and the book really takes us on a journey of how you became really interested in science and all of the kind of amazing revelations that you've uh, discovered on your journey throughout um, discovering science and how that interfaces with culture and art and philosophy and um, spirituality in places. Um, and I, find it, I found it absolutely beautiful. Uh, it feels very meandering, but it feels almost like a really long, really good conversation with your mates down the pub, um, rather than a kind of science book. And I enjoyed every second. Um, I know you've all kind of bought tickets to this uh, event, so you're already invested, and I probably don't need to sell it. But if you have a project, buy it. It's great. Um, well, I'm really glad you like because it was such a, a weird... Uh, trying to work out what was going to be in it, what was going to be left out, and that I'd like the book was a hundred thousand words longer than it is now because I didn't look at the word count during lockdown, <laughs> and then delivered this book to the publisher. Who went what the? F and it was like, oh, is it as long as one of those boring books about Stalin? Yes, it is. It's too long. And um, and so yeah, it was. Uh, and I, I think it is, I mean, the odd thing, it would have been far more meandering if someone hadn't kept saying, no one will have a clue what you're saying. <laughs> and uh, and I did really want to invest it with, as you said, I, I wanted, I, I feel sad that there are so many people that feel that they can't approach science because of the experience that they might have had at school or just because, you know, that's all it takes is to then go, I don't have a science brain. And then the worry that the moment you hear a scientific idea that you don't understand, rather than go anywhere closer to it, you run away from it. And I think, you know, being someone who is not, you know, I, I, there's lots of scientists that I work with and lots of scientists that I talk to, but I never understand them. You know, even Brian Cox, who I've worked together now 12, 13 years, and sometimes he'll start going on and I'll hear the first three minutes and then it's just Homer Simpson in my head. It's just, meow, 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 But quite often one of the bits that I've taken is already, because that's, I think, part of it, which I hope comes across the book, which is it doesn't matter about understanding everything. No one understands everything. Even the scientists, when you, you, you sometimes see one of them talking and you think that everything they're seeing in their head is something they understand, like numbers. Numbers where when you hear a, 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 an astronomer talk about a billion light years, and I think sometimes we think that they actually have in their head an image which we cannot fit into ours. And then when you actually talk to people, they go, well, ultimately what I'm seeing is big. That's what I'm seeing. <laughs> and it always is that thing that, I, I can't remember if I mentioned it in the book or not, but Matter of Life and Death, which is one of my favourite movies of all time, beautiful movie made in the mid-1940s. And it starts off with this camera just panning across the stars, and then it has the most English voice you can imagine, just going, this is the universe. Big, isn't it? And that, <laughs> that's the first thing, that the moment you're engaging with merely the idea that the universe is so big, you're already making some progress. The fact that you don't know the exact dimensions isn't important because actually that won't change the importance of knowing the bigness of it. Ooh. 
Um, yeah, in the book, in the first chapter, you mentioned that you, as a kid, you were turned off science. And yeah. You felt like science wasn't for you. Um, so I wondered if if you could go back in time and talk. No, I can't. I asked Brian Catherine. He said it's really annoying because I'm very keen on the idea. He says no, it breaks all the laws. He's, he's he's a stickler for that. He's so typically conservative with his always adhering to the laws of physics. Um, but no, I was. Uh, I'm a very difficult interview. That's the thing you just yeah, just um, the. Uh, um, it, I, th I think that it was because I really did love science as well. I thought it was so. I, I was, I think, twelve when Carl Sagan's Cosmos was on television, and I remember there was me and a friend of mine that on it was Monday nights, as far as I remember, on BBC, we were allowed to stay up a bit later than normal and watch that. It was like, wow, this is filled with all of these ideas, and and um, and also I think primary school science education is a lot more kind of. You know, you are going on nature walks and you're picking up leaves and you're looking at everything. You, you've got this contact with stuff. And then somewhere in secondary school education, the contact is gone and it becomes a series of symbols and it becomes numbers. And it becomes, you know, even people I know who are scientists will still go, oh, God, I don't know how I became a scientist when I look at the way the curriculum is taught. And this is something I'll make very specific as well is this is not a complaint against teachers who, who are one of the groups of people that I dedicate this book to because the teachers that I speak to do we have teachers in in today most of the teachers I speak to are spent so much time railing against the targets that they are given which means that the joy and the stories cannot be shared and I think in particular in, in, in science talking to my friend Alan Shah who says Every year, GCSE has another equation. It adds another equation that you have to memorise. And that doesn't mean you understand that equation. And so I think, you know, science has often been poorly served um, by those people in government, many of whom do not have a science background, do not have a joy in science unless it immediately leads to some form of profit. Mm -hmm. And so... And they don't, they don't, I mean, even if someone like Radio 4, the battles we've had with Monkey Cage, because they, the actual executives are all from a kind of, I a PPE background in Oxford or an arts education, which is one I've had as well, but I think they're a bit sniffy towards science still. Mm. They still have that north-south divide, that old idea that, you know, London was known as the place of art and Manchester was the grubby place of industry. And there's, that, there's a kind of mental divide in that way. Um... I mean, they always found Monkey Cage, it's like the reviews, no one liked Monkey Cage review-wise because they they didn't see, they couldn't understand how science could be presented like, like this because it's meant to be, hello, welcome to science. Science is something that I myself don't understand, but here's a man who does. I do understand. <laughs> oh, good, this is so boring, it must be science, right? And of course, all the scientists I know are, you know, they're, they're, they're gregarious, boozy, fascinated people uh, who, you know, love talking about ideas. And that wasn't what was presented. And that's also what I presumed as I grew up. I thought that wasn't what science was. I thought science was something that was just so far away from me being able to. And also, when we dissected a frog in biology, it was a really hot summer day. And when I then went walking afterwards, I found out someone had put the remains of the frog in my blazer pocket. So that put me off as well. <laughs> Many different levels. Well, you can tell the producers that a senior lecturer in science communication told you you were doing the right thing. <laughs>
We get that from science communication as well. <laughs> we got a thing that after we did uh, the first really big tour, someone said, um, oh, uh, as, as someone who's an expert in science communication, can I tell you what you're doing wrong? Oh. And, and, I thought, and, I, and I would like to know, but then it turned out there was... And it wasn't actually about the details. Mm -hmm. It was something about, ah, oh, no, you don't do science communication properly. And you think, well, if people leave excited... I mean, what we, Brian, myself, and a lot of the people I work with, Helen Chersky... The thing that we most want people to leave with is not some new information to impart. Mm -hmm. It's, right, that's the story I want to go and explore. Mm -hmm. That's where I'm going next. So it's not giving them a body information. We'd like it's giving them an, an extra dose of passion to yeah. go and address these things. Yeah, and I think that's a much more useful objective um, for science communication. And I think the book does that too. Um, uh, so that's brilliant. Um, in the first chapter of the book, you express um, frustration with the attitude that, um, you know, this attitude that facts don't care about your feelings, science doesn't care about your feelings. Um, and that seemed to be a strong theme back in the late 2000s of the kind of sceptics movement. Um, and it seems to me that some science communicators or people in that movement are still there. Mm. But for me, I think that the shift, there's been a shift um, away from that kind of thinking um and you stress that in the book but i wondered if you'd also kind of witnessed this this change in thinking among the more skeptic community i think there's a real I, I think for a lot of people of my generation and probably the the the, the generation after me had might have had an experience during the atheist boom of uh hey isn't this great you're an atheist i'm an atheist we oh, we must have loads in common and then we had the next step of going, oh, we don't have as much in common because some people in that movement, you know, without having an Old Testament God to enforce it upon them, have nevertheless decided to embrace, you know, different forms of misogyny and racism and all manner of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was an interesting point of seeing... And Hayley Stevens, who I talked to in the book, who uh, kind of is, is a sceptic and does great work, but feels very uncomfortable with the sceptic movement now because mm -hmm. I think she's seen within that... I think, like anything, ultimately, it, it, a movement can become dogmatic. And once the movement becomes dogmatic, especially the sceptic movement, then it's the wrong movement. And there are brilliant sceptic groups. There are The Merseyside sceptics are, are probably my favourite because the Merseyside sceptics are driven by understanding why people believe sometimes things that might not... Well, might be quite damaging to them. I mean, you know, in the book I talk about, you know, the kind of uh, the, the new age cancer treatments that are out there, which are not treatments at all and which could kill people. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that Merseyside sceptics want to deal with. They want to deal with things on a very, very human level. And I think it's very easy, and I have certainly done it, it's, and I probably will do it again. It's very easy to do a jo joke that's just mocking a group and you get a good laugh. And then you move on. And then you start to think. And certainly I think I was more of an atheist in 2006 than I am now. I still don't believe it's God. So that hasn't changed. But I was like, I think I did. I think I did have a period of time where I thought, yeah, if no one believed in religion, everything would be great. And then I was like, oh, hang on a minute. Religion's not the big problem or faith isn't the big problem. Dogma is the enormous problem. And I, it's an argument that I had with uh, uh, Richard Dawkins once. He's very easy to argue with, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was, I, I said, I, I think now, after those books had come out, it was time to move on a bit and say the enemy is... Because as I, as I talk about in the book as well, there are people I know who have faith. Some of them are scientists and some of them are priests who are also able to accept 
all of the ideas of, of science in terms of evolution by natural selection and in terms of the Big Bang and all of those different ideas and the ideas of Einstein, whatever it may be, and also have a space for God. And some of those people, there was a point where I think they were partly alienated from science because they felt that science had suddenly become this thing which just went, oh, by the way, if you come into this house and actually you believe in God, we'd all go, ha, ha, ha. So I think we need to, you know, deal with some of those things and there's certainly things that I've been guilty of in the past as well yeah and I think that's also a theme in stand-up comedy sometimes that there seems to be now a division between the stand-up comedy comedians who do that point and laugh thing versus uh people like you and Josie Long who kind of uh, a lot more I feel a lot more inclusive in your comedy but and it's all about here's some stuff that's really cool and let's talk about it in a funny way rather than um having a a <coughs> well, I think it's something that I've learned because I, you know, like everyone, I, I can, or not like everyone, I don't know why I said that. That was extraneous words. And now I've said they were extraneous words, which were extraneous. Look, let's just move on. <laughs> I think that there was, there was definitely a turning point for me that I realised you get more out of trying to make people happier and feel less alone with stand-up than you get from everyone feeling united because they hate the same group of people. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the, what is called edgy comedy that is out there now is not edgy at all. It is the same stuff as you would see from the worst columnists on the Mail on Sunday or the Express. And somehow it's been packaged. There's a friend of mine, sadly no longer with us, Barry Crimmins, a great hero of the comedy movement and a great hero of many other things as well. And he said, ah, oh, the thing that gets me is when people go, oh, well, I'm not politically correct. Well, well done for somehow finding a way of supposedly occupying a rebel position while ultimately merely bolstering the oppressive status quo. And <laughs> which was kind of, and, and Barry was an amazing man. He would take, he fought big, he, he was, I'm sorry, this is a, a totally different, I'm sorry for to be tangential, but I, Barry was someone that I, that when I first started talking to Barry, we clicked immediately. And I, I love Barry's work and uh, I, I miss him a great deal because before we really got to know each other, sadly he died. But Barry fought against the Catholic Church, he fought against the American government, he fought for people who were truly oppressed and people who were made victims, he fought against bullies. He truly was an edgy comic because there were places that would not book him because he went way out there. And then you see people who are going up there and they're doing stuff that whether it's kind of, you know, I mean, I would barely even say anti-trans. These kind of jokes that your dad would make about going, oh, well, I'm going to identify as a sofa then and <laughs> shit like that. And you get kind of and the misogyny and all of these things and race stuff. And somehow it's become repackaged that having that oppressive status quo opinion is supposedly also the rebel opinion. And I definitely I look back. At, I was never like that, but I do look back at some of the stand up I do and I think, Oh, do you know what? I wonder if that made someone feel worse in the audience. And I really hope. And sometimes that will still happen. I don't look at everything that I do and go, um, uh, I'll just make sure everyone's happy. Because there's a bit, I mean, I talk in the book about there's a thing once where I upset someone in the audience with a poem that I did. And it reminded them of someone that they'd lost. And they were like saying, you must never do that again. And you don't know how many people have lost someone in the audience. And, and it was something that I looked at for a great deal of time. I went, no, no, no. I know that for the majority of people, what they take for this is the thing that I'm intending. Mm -hmm. It doesn't belittle that person who's seen something else in it. And it doesn't mean that what they felt was not also the, the, that that is, you know, I, I understand that. But it's so to me, it's always that balance about 
was there enough purpose in what I said and did it have a good enough cause and does it affect enough people in the right way that means I have to keep doing that but I realise that every now and again someone is going to accept, you know, is not going to take it in the right way. This is about a different book I did, by the way, three years ago, which they probably won't have in stock here and I've just realised that I'm now talking about chapter nine of that. What year is it? Uh, oh my God, Brian, I thought we had broken the laws of physics. There's a really good documentary about Barry Crimmins, I think on, is it on Netflix? Call Me Lucky. There you go. So you can look that up. Please. Please do watch Call Me Lucky. I really would love you to, and I mean this, if you watch that film, you will see, uh, I'm still in contact with Helen, his, his wife, and uh, it's an it's made by Bobcat Goldthwait, who is another really good person. And have you, have you seen The World's Greatest Dad with Robin Williams? No. Such a great movie. But Bobcat Goldthwait is someone who's very much worth following their work. And the movie he made with Barry is, is a really, I think, important movie as well. I, I won't tell you all the details of it because there's some pretty unpleasant things that he had to deal with, as you know. Yeah. Um, so one theme that kind of crops up throughout the book is um, science fiction uh, and your own kind of very clear passion for science fiction. And you relate a lot to, of the ideas that you talk about to um, films and books. Uh, but it also comes up uh, uh, a lot with the, the, interview, the interviews you've done with people and they've cited certain influences of science fiction on their own lives and their own work. Um, so I, I guess... I wondered how important you think science fiction is as a tool for getting people excited about science and understanding science. I think for my generation it was really important because Space 1999 is, is in fact, Brian loves it so much he's even got the costume that was specially made for it, <laughs> uh, which is not nearly as flattering on me. And, uh, and I think it was... I mean, in the 70s, it was certainly a good mix where there were really good science programmes and then you'd be watching Blake 7 and you'd be watching uh, Space 1999 and obviously Doctor Who as well. And, and then for me, I mean, I think, and this is not merely my generation, but Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which I read as this kind of absurd thing. I, I had no idea when I first read it that some of the ideas he was talking about were real physics, because they were so crazy. The kind of, you know, probability drives and all of these things just seemed like really brilliant imagination of an author. And then a few years later, you start to go, oh, OK, so in quantum mechanics, this was, oh, oh OK, and in this form of cosmology, oh, and this, you know, that is... In fact, the guy who edited the book, um, there were three eventually, um, <laughs> only the last was strong enough, and... Um, but, uh, because he said he didn't realise that the restaurant at the end of the universe is not a kind of geographical position, that it's at the end of the universe, that it's the end of the universe. This is when the universe ends. So that is interesting to me that even somebody who works in books just simply didn't even know the meaning of that title. But I think, and I love, I mean, I mentioned in that book, in the book, uh, one of my favourite bits of work is Roadside Picnic by uh, Boris and Arkady Stragatsky, um, which is, was turned into the film Stalker. And it's an amazing, have you seen Stalker? No. It's such a great film. And, uh, and what's great about the book and the film is they're in the same world uh, and they're influenced by... You know, but they are two also really good separate pieces of work, so you can enjoy both. But that has... I just love the idea, because one of the conversations I've often had when doing Monkey Cage and just with my friends generally is about extraterrestrial life. 
and you know the potential because because Arthur C. Clarke talks about the idea that there are only only two possibilities that either there is uh, intelligent life in the universe or there isn't any other intelligent life in the universe and both of those ideas are terrifying which I don't agree with I uh, I think that the terrifying idea is that there are lots of places where intelligent life evolves but it never coincides with its technology that we're ever able to communicate so the h- horror to me is that one day an alien species might arrive here and go, wow, they built a lot of stuff, but they didn't last, did they? It looks like there's a... Or you arrive at a planet and go, oh, we're a bit early, still lifeless. That, to me, is, is the more terrifying thing. I, I would absolutely agree. I'm, I'm writing a book at the minute about aliens and linguistics, and that would make the whole thing redundant. That's great. Is that cool? <laughs> <laughs> so is that so is that about communication with extraterrestrials then, and, and what we should be looking at? It's um, so it's about um, science fiction influences on linguistic research, right. and how um, you can link a lot of uh, current study in linguistics to kind of. Uh, speculative ideas from science fiction. Oh, okay. Give me an example. Um, well, Arrival is the obvious example. Yeah. Um, uh, because my PhD was in evolutionary linguistics, so when um, humans first started to try and negotiate communication systems, um, the nearest thing that we kind of have as a, 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 a thought experiment to that is aliens land, and you've got no shared knowledge, you've got no shared... Uh, awareness of how you might communicate or use language and you have to kind of uh, negotiate that if anybody's seen Arrival that's that's what happens there um, uh, but a lot of uh, evolutionary linguistics work now uses kind of artificial alien languages where they get people into the lab and they give them a little alien language to learn to try and work out what people do with it to see what happened with our ancestors um, so that's that's one example that's really cool I'll buy that book uh, the, if you can have it finished before the end of the evening, you might sell sixty copies. <laughs> no, but that really because that, that's always because I think about you know the Wittgenstein thing. You know, if a line could talk, you know, we would not be able to understand it. So, and I think you know, and Carl Sagan talked about that idea that you know we talk about speaking to uh, extraterrestrial species, but we can't communicate. You know, with a blue whale, we can't communicate with the most. I mean, I think. One of the people I wish I had in the book, actually, is Kat Hobater, who's based in, in, in Dundee University and does a lot of uh, language research with, with chimpanzees. And, and what she's discovered about the intricacy of that sign language, that what was previously thought to be, oh, get up on my back, is then actually, oh, no, this has about this has a whole sentence of ideas and different re- relationships to it. But that I find really... Um, because that's always what I think is, how are we going to be able... Because we have this only this one example of life in the universe, which we have to we we have to base everything on this. Mm-hmm. And if you think how hard it is for us to be able to, I mean, in, in times when we've gone to alien territories, as in other countries, and we've met people, very often we've decided we've belittled those people and, and decided to to pretend that they're merely primitive people or whatever. Mm-hmm. We've not even been able to communicate sometimes with the same species because the cultures that we're in are so different, and even the experience of time is so different because of the nature of different cultures. Mm-hmm. So this sounds brilliant, this yeah, book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for selling the idea for me. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I think kind of the value of science fiction for linguistics is, is viewing things as a, uh, a, a more objective outsider than humans who always think we're really special. And like in the past, that's resulted in colonialism or kind of thinking that spoken languages are more complex than signed languages and all of these other ideas. Um, but I think the same thing's true for science generally, that science fiction allows for this 
speculative, speculative um, all of these thought experiments to happen. Uh, and from that, a lot of kind of genuine science has arisen, mm. um, some of which becomes so kind of weird that you cease to be able to sort of comprehend it in some spaces. And I think that happens in, in the book, especially when you're talking about string theory and things. I don't know. Oh, that's hard. That. <laughs> but, that but I think that's the great thing about fiction is that fiction is a place where you are allowed to play. Because <laughs> Douglas Adams, actually, another thing he said was he stopped reading fiction because he realised that up until the end of the 19th century, it was there to explore ideas that we didn't yet have the wherewithal or the technology to explore. Mm -hmm. and, I've and I think I kind of agreed with him for a while. And now I realise that that's a terrible position for me personally, because in so many, not many science fiction, so many works that I read and suddenly start to get an understanding, say, of neurodivergence sometimes or, or just of different human experience or different ways of looking at the world. And I, and I think it's such a great... You know, Alan Moore, who obviously I interviewed in, in, in the book, Alan plays with so many ideas. And he's, if you've never read... How many of you have read Alan Moore's work? I hope to have you read Watchmen, V Vendetta, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He's in, in, incredible. I think some people might be like kind of... Oh, but he does comics and might not realise that those comics are so dense with ideas. He's a, a, a revolutionary. And his novel, Jerusalem, which, in fact, the first conversation I ever had with Alan many, many years ago... Uh, I'd, I'd met him once before but then I rang him up and I said uh, how are you Alan and he went I'm having a good day today I've just found out that Einstein agrees with me <laughs> and, uh, and he was working on his, his novel Jerusalem which is this huge novel but and really rich have you, have you read it? I haven't read it but it's on my list oh it's such a great it's the only long book I've, I don't have to read Infinite Jest now because I've read that <laughs> but, but it is so uh, he, he basically deals with the block universe um, and he deals with the idea, because that, that's one of my favourite things, is thinking about when you don't think of time as being a horizontal line, but you think of time as stacked like that. So when you stand, like if you go and stand out here for a moment and you just let your mind drift for a while and you think of all of the other things that have happened in time at that point. And he does this with Northampton, his hometown. And there's so many different chapters and so many different times. And after you've read the book and you go to Northampton for the first time, it's almost hard to walk through the streets because the air feels so dense with all of the ghosts that he's created, with all of these previous experiences of Northampton. And, and, I, and I think Jerusalem introduces you to loads of fascinating scientific ideas. Yeah. And he is just, I mean, he's a remarkable mind. He smokes joints that are that long, right? <laughs> and yet, and perpetually, and yet somehow also manages to write Brilliant work the whole time. And I did a thing with him and, and Philip Ball, who's a very, very good science writer. And it was about Philip Ball's book, Beyond Weird, which is uh, about the wrong way that we approach quantum mechanics. And, uh, and it was so much fun because, right, so I introduced them and then they sit down together. And then the first thing that I can see in Philip's face is, oh, my God. Alan has read the whole of my books. I think he got used to doing events where people had skimmed over it. And then I saw his face go, oh, my God. Alan has understood the whole of my book. And then there was a third bit where we went, oh my God, Alan has understood the ramifications of the things and understood some things which I hadn't realised were in the book. And you just watch that mind at work. And he, I think, has been a big influence on me because he also, because he still allows himself to play with mystical ideas and ideas of myth and sometimes the more arcane and esoteric world, while at the same time never dismissing the science... Uh, I think that 
reminded me as well that there's always room to also play. And, you know, there's, there's hard science and the science that, you know, you can't really argue with, but then there's a kind of area as well where you go, we can play in here. Mm -hmm. um, and that point leads me on really nicely to my final question, and then I'm going to open it up to the audience. So uh, if you can think of some questions uh, in the next five minutes, that would be super. Um, if you can't, I've written some poems. <laughs> 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 um, so... Um, from a science communication perspective, we often talk about kind of embedding science in culture and in art, um, and uh, there's real value uh, in that. And I think that um, that really comes uh, across in what you say about Alan Moore's work, but also um, you talk briefly about um, David Baddiel's new play, um, which is all about physics. Um, and you know, lots of people will go out and read some Alan Moore comics or novels and go and see a play that David Baddiel's done without necessarily realising there's loads of science mm. in there and then it kind of takes them as part of the art. But then a lot of what you do is um, kind of label the science theme. So your radio shows, your um, tour shows um, and, your, and your book. Um, so I kind of, um, I guess the question is about the value of things that are advertised that they're science-themed versus things that are kind of more uh, hidden uh, in their labelling? Well, I think we need to sneak it in in a lot more places. I mean, that's really where it started. I used to do a show called Book Club, which was uh, with, with, with Josie and my friends Gorka Gogo and various others, and it was, uh, it was a celebration of my favourite bits of literature that I found in uh, charity shops. So if any of you ever went, you might have said, we did it a few times at Hen and Chicken. In particular, I would read out from the Guy and Smith giant killer crabs novels, Crabs on the Rampage, Night of the Crabs, Crabs Moon, uh, <laughs> Sacrifice of the Crabs, you know the rest. And, uh, and I would have musical accompaniment of crabs, 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 the size of beach donkeys. And uh, I even did a musical with my friend Robin Hitchcock where one day we were at a festival and the festival said, if you want to have the tent at 1am, you can do whatever you want for a couple of hours. So I found Robin, who's a huge fan, you probably know Robin from the Soft Boys and uh, Robin Hitchcock and the Egyptians. And then I found... Uh, uh, opera singers, tap dancers, all these things we put on the Crabs musical. And then I, uh, which is just a natural thing to do. And uh, sometimes I wonder why I never really broke into the mainstream. And, um, and then I decided, ah, oh, I love celebrating these books which are kind of, you know, dubbed bad or whatever. Why don't I also do a show which celebrates books that are filled with ideas that I love for the reason of, of kind of the education and the information and the inspiration in them. And I thought, oh, yeah, and people, a lot of people don't think they've got science minds. So if I put on a show where I've got, say, Noel Fielding doing something and I've got someone like my friend Gavin Osborne to do some songs of Grace Petrie and things like that, and then I just sneak in a theoretical physicist. <laughs> they don't necessarily know. It's what they least expect. <laughs> and, and so we do all these things. Thanks very much, Noel Fielding. Now, uh, the next person we introduce is a solar scientist. Her name is Lucy. A solar scientist? What's going on? And then Lucy Green would come on and she would talk about her work and everyone would go, I didn't know I could be so interested in these ideas. So I think you're right. The, the problem the moment you have science on the label is there are people who are not going to come in because they still think so we do need I mean the problem with the media actually let's not deal with all the problems um, <laughs> but one of the many problems of the media I think is the fact that first of all it's a dogmatic situation where columnists uh, are always 100% right so it's a very least you know it's not scientific but 
that's also we don't see enough science stories in newspapers. We don't see science just kind of bleeding into other magazine shows. You, you will have someone appearing on a chat show if they've played a scientist. So we're joined by an actor who pretended to be a scientist. What was it like? It was very hard. I had to learn <laughs> some words that I would not normally say. That sounds amazing. And then, but you wouldn't actually go, we're joined by, you know, to have Nobel Prize winners on the Graham Norton show, to have, you know, someone like, for instance, Paul Nurse would be a wonderful thing because they're raconteurs, they're funny, and they have, and we don't have enough of that. <laughs> That's where we need it to happen. And I don't know how we do that. I mean, all we can do is just keep, I mean, for, with, with me and my mates who make Cosmic Shambles thing and the stuff that I do with Helen and Josie and whatever, is just to keep making it and saying, come in, come in, come in, it's okay. Yeah. And, that, and that's, you know, and, and finding different ways of sneaking things in. Like, um, you know, when we started doing, we do these shows at Hammersmith Apollo. We don't do it at Hammersmith Apollo anymore because uh, they're fucked over. Our audience refused to give them back their booking fee when they cancelled a show on us. Uh, so now we're just playing a little place called the Royal Albert Hall. Anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, but I was very angry about that, that the, the, way, the way that Hammersmith um, screwed people over but um, when we started doing that I always wondered will people come because they're already into science and what we very quickly found was people came because they knew it was just going to be a big and weird show mm. and there might be a great you know, sometimes we've had bands like The Cure and New Order and stuff and public service broadcasting and so very often people have come for the music but they are actually then going oh I really enjoyed the science bits mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think we need to do a lot of work on that kind of stuff. Brilliant. Uh, thank you. Um, I have no idea how long we've been going, uh, Darren, so when you want us to stop talking, please just wave. I'd pay absolutely no attention to you, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, anybody, Very bad man. Does anybody have any questions for Robin? Read this book, by the way. It's great. <laughs> Luck and Boot by Jenny Fagan. <laughs> <laughs> um, just following on from the last point, actually, um, about the, uh, the shows you've got in London, I do think, I, I, I absolutely agree with you that that is, I mean, that's kind of my ideal night out. There's a bit of music, a bit of comedy, a bit of science. You know, you get the whole, it's, it's a nice round of evening. You're not just having, as much as I love going to see just stand-up comedy, I was just going to see a band. Um, I think it's kind of like, I suppose, I mean, I'm searching for a, for a better phrase, but a modern variety show. Yeah, that is what we're trying to do. Uh, what we want is we want people to see lots of, like when we did the Space Shambles show at, uh, at the Albert Hall and we, and we had public service broadcasting and Grace Petrie came along and did uh, a, a beautiful song. I think she did a song about Richard Feynman. Uh, and uh, and then, then we had Stuart Lee came on and accidentally alienated the audience. Um, <laughs> was very, were you there? Oh, oh man, it was really funny. Like... It was like, I told Stuart, and we have Rusty Schweikart, who's in the book, who, who was, uh, did Apollo 9, which is a really fascinating Apollo mission, which is one of the ones that's barely ever spoken about because Apollo 8 actually, you know, went around the moon and, uh, and there is, Apollo 8 is... That's where Earthrise came from, that beautiful picture, Earthrise, that was such an inspiration for the environmental movement. And uh, the bit they never talk about as much, though, is also the attack of diarrhoea that happened on Apollo 8, which is what they don't... That's what you want to see in the space movies, right? That's the bit that wasn't in gravity. It's two astronauts, while one of them still got diarrhoea, the other two floating around going, there's another bit over there. Right, so... And I know, it's horrible, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that, that's what you never... Oh, those episodes of Star Trek where they went, ah, oh, surely, Dr. McCoy, you've got some emodium. Um, and um, 
And so Apollo 9 was this incredible... So, so Rusty was there as well. And then I'd said to uh, Stuart, who did this very funny thing about uh, the moon landings um, years before, I said, oh, Stu, do you want to do it? And he, and he went, oh, yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, I'll do that. And, uh, and I said, just so you know, it's kind of a family-friendly audience. So, you know, don't feel under any pressure. You are still free to do whatever you want. But have that in the back of your mind. You went, oh, no, I'll, I'll remember that. It's good. And then, obviously, over the two weeks, he'd been very busy and forgotten that. And Rusty Schweikart went on. And also, we had someone called Seb Lee Delisle, who did this incredible work with lasers as well. Really brilliant laser stuff. And he's going to be back, I think, at the Albert Hall for the next thing we're doing. And uh, Rusty played with the lasers. And everyone's going, we've seen an Apollo astronaut. And we've seen Chris Hatfield. And we've seen lasers. Everything's brilliant. And I went, please welcome Stuart Lee. And he just walked on. He went, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of astronauts, you know, back there. They're all like, oh, yeah, I've been to space. It's really brilliant. You know, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so, boy, you know, looking at the, uh, the Earth from space is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it is, you know. And then, uh, you know, just talking about all that. And um, I don't know about you, but I think, I think astronauts are like fucking idiots. <laughs> and, then, and, and then he did this kind of 10 minute, very sweary monologue. So on two levels, it was problematic. There was a huge number of families there. Fuck this, fuck that. And secondly, he was saying astronauts were rubbish and there's five and a half thousand people sat there going, you very much misjudged us. <laughs> I only had to write five apology letters in the end. Um, but yeah, we, I can't remember why I started telling you this. So anyway, but uh, yeah, but that is the thing. Yeah, it's just to, I, I like that, that mashing it up and, uh, and people, and sometimes, like that night, what a lot of people took away from it was they came there having loved ideas of, of Apollo exploration and, and all those things and left going, um, we must never go and see Stuart Lee. No, 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 they left, they left going. A lot of them had never seen Stuart before yeah. and they were like, oh, that was really funny that someone would go on in a night celebrating space exploration <laughs> and kind of then just do that. It's a, it's a similar idea to going to, when you go to a festival, whereas where it's an arts festival, you know, like Lastonbury as an example, you go and you see, sort of say, oh, I'm going to see this band, this band, this band. But then on the way, you see stuff you'd never expect to see. And it gets you in you know, all sorts of different directions. Well, that's what we have to... I think it's a problem that we have, is very often people only go and see what they know they're going to like. And, I mean, when I'm touring art centres, the times when I look at that, I go, oh, my God, there's another Eagles tribute band, there's another Abba tribute band, and they're all probably very good at what they do. But all of those people, and they will have a nice night, but they could have gone to see something new that they wouldn't have known they were going to leave. And, and so it's like with art galleries, quite often I'll go to something where I go, that does not sound like my cup of tea at all. But I better check, right? <laughs> and I realise that it's problematic as well because of the cost of things. Uh, but I think there is a real problem now, which is... Uh, we've gone backwards culturally in terms of, there used to be this thing that the BBC would say, which was that they tried as much as possible to always be one step ahead of public taste. And if you look at most of mainstream media now, they're mining things that they're certain people will like. And that means that we're not getting, you know, I think I was very lucky to be of a generation where even though there were only three channels, and then, of course, when Channel 4 came when I was 13 years old, oh, my God, the world it took me to, you know, in the same way that alternative comedy was so important to me. When I first got into that, and I was seeing Alexi Sell, and I was seeing Rick Mail, and I was seeing Claire Dowie, and I was seeing all of these people who were not just introducing me to new ways of doing jokes, 
but new ideas and new political ideas and philosophical ideas. And so I think there's a, it's even harder. I mean, someone like Josie, Josie Long should be a huge star as far as I'm concerned. And television should have just said, do you know what? We're not going to sit you on a panel show. We're just going to, you make what you want to make. And when I see the amount, I mean, one of my favourite things, and Josie and me have both experienced this thing, where someone's brought their dad or something like that, and, uh, and they've come up at the end of the show and gone, uh, well, I've got to say, I did not understand any of that, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> and, then, you know, and that is the favourite thing. Sometimes it's people bringing their kids, and sometimes it's, it's you know, the kids bringing their dad or their granddad, and they're dragged to something that they don't think they're going to like. And also, sometimes people do leave and go, again, going back to Stuart Lee, he was one of the last acts that I saw before lockdown, his brilliant show, Snowflake Tornado. And I was so lucky, it was at the Watford Coliseum. Yes, it does have a Coliseum. <laughs> and, uh, and it's this beautiful, the, the way that the seating is raked meant that I really felt the impact of laughs as Stuart but not only was he going down brilliantly and everyone loved him but not quite everyone fortunately the seven people in front of me hated it and there was nothing that made it even funnier and you could tell one of them was an uncle who'd said hey everyone I'm gonna take to see Stuart Lee he's really great I think you're gonna have a lot of fun watching this and then he had to sit there going <laughs> and then Stu always says when people are leaving and he's there manning his stall there's always he can hear people going I'm sorry Gary but we're never going to see it again I've seen that three times now and I just don't get it and so there's still that as well that, that bit but I love you know I think it's such an important part of, of you know of, of us as human beings any other questions so Hannah mentioned earlier the movement of the sceptics like 10 15 years ago um, and they sort of dissected and, and unpacked, you know, alternative medicine and, and all those kind of things that weren't scientific. But I feel like now we've kind of come to the other side where there's a very growing anti-science movement. And obviously the anti-vax movement being the most, I suppose, um, prominent at the moment. Do you have any theories about why people are moving away from science? when we have so much information available to us? I think, personally, I think it's not nearly as many people as we imagine. I think the way that certain conversations are amplified, I mean, talking to people who've been involved in vaccine research and actually talking to doctors and nurses as well, there's not been nearly as much vaccine hesitancy as you might imagine. There's been a pretty good uptake. But those people who've learned how to monetize, and this is the thing that so often gets left out of the story, these supposed rebels who are anti-vaccination are more often than not, first of all, vaccinated, and secondly, making money out of it. There's a lot of money. So I think one of the reasons that we hear a lot of it is a small group of people have found ways to make a lot of cash doing this. Um, I don't think it's as big a problem as we imagine, but I think there's another strange problem, which is it's never been so easy to access good scientific information and access papers as well, which in one way is brilliant if you are within that world. But in another way, for instance, if you don't agree with climate science, you only need to find one paper and you, you're not surrounded by all the other information which puts that in context. And you find that one thing, you see, 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 and that is why polar bears have never been bigger, actually. And you find that one. And so I think, strangely enough, the, the ability to communicate, and, and we are also, I think we've never been immersed in so much information. 
And I think one of the hard things when you're sometimes arguing with people is to find those that you should be talking to because there are people who have not been vaccinated because of misinformation, not because of any dogma. Uh, and, and in the same way also when we see in different kind of cultural groups where there are levels of scepticism because of things that have happened historically as well, where we have to work even harder to make sure that good information is out there. I think the media uh, have behaved abominably. I mean, I think the mere fact that this government still have the power that they have, uh, it's incredible how many people you can kill and if you have the majority of the news media on your side, you are able to get away with that. There is no way an opposition like a Labour government, a Lib Dem government, a Green government not, could have got away with even 50% of those excess deaths that we've seen and stayed in power. So there's, there's quite a few different levels. There. I think, one, it's not as bad as we think. Two, we do need to work as hard as possible in finding ways that do not mock people, but invite people in. And then we work out the ones who are, you know, someone like David Icke has definitely monetized the situation. David Icke is a very good example of why you become, I mean, I don't know with David Icke if he really believes that stuff or not. And I've talked to people who've kind of been quite close to him and they're not entirely sure. But he has a very typical uh, narrative, which is he was going to have a promising football career and then he became ill and he lost that career. And then he thought he was going to be made the presenter of Grandstand, the big BBC One sports show. And then he didn't get that job. And then you start to go, hang on, why haven't I got the things that I want? Now, it could be about the chaos and just the, the fact that life had, comes at so many angles. Or maybe it is some lizards. <laughs> and so he starts to go down that route. And then he's found way of... So, so I think there's lots of... I think there's so many different ways that people can be dissatisfied now. And there's so many ways that people are shortchanged. And there are... You know, I always think of that beautiful cartoon where you have two great big... I can't remember what they are with their generals or whatever. You know that one where they're eating a huge pile of biscuits and there's one worker sat with a single biscuit and there's someone there who represents refugees... And the two huge people with all the biscuits going, he's trying to eat your biscuit. And that is another way, I think, that people have sometimes been drawn in to some of these paranoid narratives. And there's also the thing, James Baldwin, who I'm sure you've got loads of James Baldwin books in this shop, and James Baldwin should always be read. And I, Have you got Eddie Glaude Jr.'s book, Begin Again? Claude Jr.? Eddie Glaude Jr. Yeah, I'm not sure. He's great. He's written a book all about when Trump got in, and he was so depressed, and he was, and then he he turns to James Baldwin and the way that it kind of empowered him. He's a really well worth watching his work. But James James Baldwin said this great line. He, he said, "I think the reason people hate so much is that if they stopped hating, they would have to deal with their own pain." And I think there's also something that we can understand of why people are lured to sometimes the paranoid mindset within that as well. Yeah, and I think that a lot of the time you hear the kind of anti-vax narratives, anti-science narratives, um, and people are being really clear, but they're the people who are kind of uh, advertising their beliefs. But when you look at the research of people who haven't vaccinated their children um, and ask them kind of directly, why is it that you haven't? It isn't some very clear anti-science belief. It's just... They were a bit anxious and they thought, better be safe than sorry. Um, and it's there's more people who are just a bit anxious than there are people who are kind of full on. Um, Bill Gates is trying to put chips in everyone. Uh, is there any more questions? In your research for the book, did you find any 
books which you say everybody must read this because the, the, the book that got me into science was Bill Bryson's short history of everything but before that I'd only ever read science books at school and Douglas Adams and stuff but a non-scientist talking about it just completely opened it up was there anything that you think read, everyone should read this you've got to recommend no, only mine. <laughs> uh, the, uh, I think, uh, well, I'm, I'll give you some that are a little bit more specific, but I don't think they'll... So, Katie Mack's book, The End of Everything, about different theories of how the universe might end, is beautifully written, very witty book, very approachable, dealing with a lot of ideas about cosmology within the whole narrative as well, of, uh, uh, about how the universe is likely to end. Uh, Rebecca Rag Sykes' book, Kindred, which is all about uh, what we now know about Neanderthals, is a very interesting book because it says a great deal about science as well. I mean, I, I was reading a book by Peter Atkins, who is a great writer, a great scientist, very, very entertaining writer. And in 2006, he is saying uh, very few people, there may be a very small number of people who have some Neanderthal DNA. And that was generally believed at that time. And of course, now that has been totally overturned. And, and I think Rebecca's book is, is again, it's, it's wittily written. It is filled with interesting stories. And she's someone totally on top of her game in terms of uh, the ideas that she's dealing with. Uh, I also, Carlo Rovelli, uh, I think there's one of his books that's really hard. <laughs> What's it called? There's, uh, there's, a, I can't, there, there's one which... I think because he became very successful, his publisher went, we need another book quickly. Well, I did write this one a while ago. We'll pretend that's popular science, right? There's one that is trickier than the others. Which one? Helgoland. Helgoland, I love. Now, Helgoland, I think is, uh, I think Helgoland, I think his seven uh, brief lessons in physics is a great way in for people. These short articles that he wrote uh, just about ideas is, is the perfect short book if someone's going to go, I'm just not even going to read big one, one. There's one copy of it. <laughs> Run! Um, and Helgoland, I, totally, I think, is so beautifully written. And what Carlo has, I think, is... He has such a lovely... He's been through so many different things in terms of he was very much into counterculture for a while. He went off travelling. He's also just a brilliant mind as well. There's so many, but I, I would say that is, uh, that's a really great book. But with a lot of these books, I think the important lesson that people need to know is... Don't read it like you read other books. Stop, start, look out of the window, think about that sentence. Sometimes just a single sentence that you've read and you think, what does that mean? And stare at it for a while and then stare at the sky for a while. I think that's one of the mistakes we sometimes make is someone might watch an hour-long documentary and go, oh, I love that idea, I'll go and get that book. No, oh, I don't understand any of it. And you may well not understand most of it. Going back to that thing right at the beginning, it doesn't always matter about understanding it all, but stop, start, and, and those kind of, I think is really, really important. There's loads of others as well. I'm, I'm trying to think of what I've, I've, I've read uh, recently, but those, I would, I would recommend all of those very highly. Brilliant. Um, I've just looked at the time and we are coming up to an hour, so I'm going to take one more question so that we have plenty of time for people to get their books signed. Um, and yes... Uh, um, you mentioned earlier your theories about extraterrestrial life. Um, on a scale of like roadside picnic being probably like the deeply pessimistic end and like arrival being the optimistic end and maybe something like, I don't know, the uh, dark forest from the free body problem being like somewhere in the middle. Like, how, how depressed are you? Um... <laughs> the very reason that I write things like this book is to write myself out of depression. <laughs> it's a... It's, uh, uh... And it, it, uh, there's more truth to that than perhaps you imagine. I, I, 
I spend a lot of time arguing with myself. The shows that I do and the books that I write are me trying, and, and I'm not depressed by it, actually. I think the extra, I, I spoke to Seth Shostak for this book, who uh, is head of the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And I said, you know, Seth, does it make you sad that if you don't live long enough to hear that signal? And he said, I don't. He said, because it's like someone who's working on a cancer cure. They might not live long enough to actually see, but they do know that they built some of the ladder and that it might not be in the next generation or the generation after that, but just, and there's, and in fact, on that, on a different thing, which is about, there's Frank Drake, who some of you will know, Drake equation, the, the, the famous equation, which basically puts together all of the things that we imagine are required for life on other planets. And one of my favorite stories that I came across when writing this book was that Frank Drake spent his career listing out for, hoping to hear extraterrestrial signals. But when he wasn't working at SETI, he volunteered for a helpline, the American equivalent of the Samaritans. So when he wasn't listening out for extraterrestrial signals, he was listening out for human beings in distress and human beings who had suffered loss. And I thought that is such an education in terms of how we balance our, the beautiful curiosity that's outward and also at the same time never to forget the human beings that are amongst us. Um, and I'm, and I'm really, and I don't mind, I, I mean, I personally think it would seem too preposterous for the universe not to have intelligent life in it. But I also think it's highly possible that we will never be able to communicate with it. I just think that that is, that finding that, you know, in, in the science fiction movies, it's always fine. Don't worry, I have a special thing that I attach to my throat, which translated into whatever language you have. Oh, that's, that's saved a lot of time. You know, and, but I, so, so in, that, in that way, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not... What, what depresses me more is that I think we have this incredible planet with such an incredible variety of life on it, and I really don't think the fragility and the unlikeliness of planets to have life like this is still not embedded enough in our culture. And I, and I think, I mean, one of the things, I, you know, I, it is political, I suppose, to say that one of the things that I found most disheartening about Brexit was the idea that when we as a species should be moving to find more and more ways of removing borders, we have made ourselves insular. We have made, we, we have, have, you know, made people feel more and more alienated from the people that we have, we are so directly related to. And I think until we really start seeing in the mainstream the message of the fragility of and, and the unlike the absurdity. I mean, it is absurd. You know, you can sit, you know, just sit out here on a summer's day and the number of different forms of life you will see. You can sit in a park and you look at butterflies, which I still think are mad. It is insane. And it is the idea that you are a caterpillar and then you go into a cocoon and actually technically it turns out you're not even the same thing. You're someone new that comes out of it and you look like that. That is ridiculous. And I think it's ridiculous that white light contains all those colours. That's not right, is it? It doesn't unweave the rainbow. I think, you know, this is what we need to keep that childish zeal because somewhere within that childish zeal will mean that our preservation becomes far more than just the preservation of us individually. Uh, what a beautiful note to end on. Thank you, Robin. Yeah, just thanks very much for joining us out of the Cosmic Shed. No, thank you very much. Do I get to see the shed eventually? Uh, well, uh, yeah. Let's, let's, have, let's go to the shed. Let's go to the shed. Let's find out where the shed is. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a crumbling garden shed in suburban Bristol that needs a bit of uh, work at the moment. But uh, if, you're, if you're ever uh, back in town, then it'd be great to have you in the shed. Right. I will be back in town. I'll get my people to talk to your people. <laughs>
<laughs> the Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network. <laughs>